Well, welcome to this 2019, January, uh, the 18th, 2019 edition of Ask Your Herb Doctor. Um, as usual, um, the third Friday of every month is given to the show, which is a one-hour live call-in uh, from 7.30 until the end of the show, 8 o'clock. And um, this month's topic is going to be just wrapping up the last two discourses uh, from December and November on skin cancer. Uh, but to tie in the topic of oncogenes um, with uh, viruses and uh, epigenetics, uh, with the viricidal activity of selected medicinal plants. Uh, there's lots of research, and um, whilst I know there has to be a little bit of uh, reservation and uh, careful uh, reading around the subject, there's a wealth of new articles uh, being published uh, on PubMed and other uh, quote-unquote scientific peer-reviewed sites, uh, ResearchGate, uh, and quite a few others have got lots of 2018 uh, and some even from this month, uh, January 2019, uh, research being done um, either on new subjects around uh, viricidal uh, components or bringing up old material uh, with a new spin, as we'll see with camphor and some of its uh, imine derivatives. The number here, if you live in the area, or if, in fact, if you live in Iceland or anywhere else on the planet, uh, is uh, 707-923-3911. Um, we'd love to hear from you from 7.30 until the end of the show. Uh, for those people especially who have uh, f- yeah, experience with Dr. Pete, following his protocols, seeing the benefits, uh, Dr. Pete, again, thank you so much for joining us this month. Mm-hmm. Um, for those people who perhaps haven't heard of you, um, and don't know too much about you, I will just give a rundown of your academic and professional background before we get started. Okay. Um, graduate study in, in biology for a PhD, 1968-72, University of Oregon. And um, since then, uh, following up on some of the ideas <clears throat> that I worked uh, on uh, for my dissertation, uh, aging and cell energy production, basically, and uh, among other things, that includes how uh, hormones and foods uh, promote viral immunity. Okay, good. Um, I'll just uh, qualify uh, what you briefly touched on there. You're a big advocate of, um, well, let's call it natural medicine anyway, but a big advocate of food-based help um, in terms of helping the organism to um, recover their homeostasis, their balance to fight infection, etc. Whether it's um, producing natural steroids or, or fighting um, bacteria and viruses, so you're, you're a big advocate of um, good food. And essentially, in that, I think when I first discovered you, you were um, the person who pretty much uh, set me straight with fish oils and liquid oils as being <laughs> being good for you, that actually being very destructive. Um, so you you spend a lot of time. Uh, discussing the nutrition aspects of healing, don't you? And the immune system ideas go way back. Before I went to graduate school in biology, I had read some of William F. Koch's research, and some of his colleagues found that the treatments he used for curing cancer also worked for curing animal diseases such as mastitis.
colitis in cows, and he showed that uh, the healthy cow uh, could actually have more bacteria in its udder than the sick cow with mastitis, and uh, that a healthy cow tolerated microorganisms without uh, suffering damage from them. And that was what uh, led me to um, get interested in the, the newer research. Uh, Jamie Cunliffe in England uh, has what he calls the, the damage uh, theory of immunity in which uh, the immune system really is a, a system for repairing tissue damage. Uh, and if microorganisms cause damage, then the, <clears throat> the immune system, so-called, uh, will clear out the uh, microorganisms that cause the damage, but that's a side effect of repairing the damage. Uh, Polly Matzinger, uh, about the same time, came out with the danger hypothesis, and uh, that's very similar, except uh, it uh, doesn't, doesn't isn't really as realistic as uh, Jamie Cunliffe's uh, because it uh, still leaves it open for uh, seeing the microorganism as intrinsically dangerous, where uh, I think the facts uh, indicate that we can tolerate uh, microorganisms as long as they don't poison us. Right, or if indeed we're not poisoned by the environment in which we live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very grand idea, um, and I think for some people they are successful in putting it into practice. I, I, I think, just speaking from personal experience, in terms of having uh, having been helped by you and guided and uh, you know uh, put straight about things that I thought were true when I was studying herbal medicine in England. Uh, back in uh, 1993, um, it's like I say, a grand idea to uh, have that common common root that the body is intrinsically able to heal itself if you give it the right material. And I don't necessarily mean the drugs, uh, whatever it is that pharmaceutical companies produce uh, to treat "quote unquote" the illness, um, but that the body has got a fairly good. It's got an incredibly miraculous uh, way of uh, running, uh, per se, and then it has a pretty good, um, a pretty good way of dealing with uh, organisms and threats to its own homeostasis, which we'll hopefully we get into here fairly soon. Uh, when you look at a viral disease epidemic, uh, there are always people <laughs> who don't succumb to it, yeah. and you often find that they have. Uh, contracted the infection they have antibodies to it but it didn't make them at all sick yeah. or just slightly sick yeah <laughs> okay I, I just wanted to uh, re remind myself here when you started talking about um you know the uh the organism and uh you know the cows with the higher uh loads of bacteria that were actually fairly you know safe and non-susceptible um that makes me think of the theory of terrain uh, that I read uh, research as I was doing my dissertation on the essential oils uh, of the Labiati, the mint family, when I was studying uh, my degree in herbal medicine. And uh, there was a couple of French scientists uh, who developed this uh, theory of the terroir uh, or the terrain of the organism being exactly what you're saying, the, the key pivotal um, moment around which disease will or won't affect the organism and how 
um, the terrain could be subtly changed with essential oils and I got to learn about the isoprenoids and the terpenes and all of the other uh, volatile smells that we get from the mint family and I hopefully later on uh, we'll touch on some of those medicinal herbs that have had some fairly recent uh, documentation uh, as being viricidal and again I've got to make it Kind of make it uh, plain that people need to do their own research because uh, when I brought articles to your attention and said, well, hey, how about this? You've said, well, actually, that's not because of this. It's because of this. And I think we'll maybe talk about that um, a little bit uh, concerning uh, mevalinate and statins and how this whole it was supposedly a good thing. Uh, but let me can I first start by just clearing up a few questions from the last month about uh, Melanoma. We talked about skin cancers, whether it's basal cell or uh, squamous cell and, or actinic keratoses or whatever they want to classify them at. But apparently the uh, incidence of melanoma has been on the rise exponentially since the 80s. Uh, I, I think from before that, I've seen go on. that it has increased 500% <laughs> since about 1940. Okay, what do you think about that? Do you have reasons for that? Um, I, I'm... Pretty sure it's not sun exposure because <laughs> it has an inverse uh, relation with altitude. Okay. Uh, and uh, the uh, change that I think is relevant is the polyunsaturated fats right. in the diet, which have increased just about at the same rate that melanoma has. Uh, are you thinking this because the polyunsaturates are energy depleting and or producing lipofushkin in the skin or your... Uh, many, many of those yeah, things, yeah. Yeah, the energy goes down and inflammation yeah. goes up. Yeah. Uh, in the veteran study, supposedly uh, to prevent heart disease in the 1960s, they gave corn oil-based diet to one group and regular fats, uh, including margarine and butter and uh, ordinary uh, moderately un unsaturated fats. And the one the group that got corn oil... In, in their diet regularly, at the end of eight years, had three times the mortality from cancer. Uh, so mm. one, one of the industry's own studies uh, related to, to what you see in the animal studies. That, uh, For example, if you look at just linoleic acid, which was the original uh, uh, essential fatty acid, so-called, uh, as the proportion of linoleic acid in the diet goes up, the uh, cancer incidence mortality goes up right with in proportion to linoleic acid. Okay, these are just because the, the, the pro-inflammatory nature um, of this in people's diets and in the food chain in general. And they do interfere with produ production and use of cholesterol. Right. Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned that because we will touch on that again a little bit later. Um, okay, so uh, I was looking at an article that whose headline was the following and just wanted you to see if you could comment on this, that uh, the lung cancer incidence decreases with elevation, uh, quote-unquote evidence for oxygen as an inhaled carcinogen. Um, so oxygen at sea level versus uh, altitude and, and what you've always mentioned about CO2 being protective uh, with longevity definitely increasing with elevation. The insurance companies have known for more than 100 years that uh, cancer mortality in general decreases with altitude, yeah. uh, very low in the high-altitude cities. And uh, as the oxygen pressure in the air 
increases, the carbon dioxide tends to decrease. If they are competitive, the pressure of oxygen displaces the carbon dioxide bound to, to blood. So this is at sea level. So we're, people at sea level are much more likely, perhaps statistically, than to get cancer because they don't have the protective effect of CO2 that you'd get at altitude? Um, yeah, it's an anti-inflammatory yeah. protective factor. Okay, good. All right, well, you're listening to Ask Your Web Doctor on KMUD Galville. 91.1 FM uh, from 7.30 till the end of the show. Uh, we'd love to take calls related or hopefully not too unrelated to this subject uh, of skin cancer, oncogenes, and then hopefully in a bit here we'll get into some uh, viricidal activity of medicinal plants. And I'll stop to Pete his opinion of the structures because I know he's got a few uh, favourites, uh, especially those things that have uh, dark pigments and or the dark red colour, the, the free radical quenching things like uh, Pau de Arco. But anyway, the number here if you're in the area, or even if you're not, is 707-923-3911. So uh, I just wanted again to just quickly cover the um, what I found is very disparate information on the one hand, and this is all from either looking at PubMed articles or ResearchGate articles. And again, uh, you can definitely offer your impression of those, and I know that you've got uh, a lot of history with um, bad research being uncovered and you finding information that's completely contrary and or just downright stupid being published. I uh, don't know how it happens, but it happens. It gets into print and people read it, and then you've got to spend the time unlearning a lot of things that you thought were the way... Um, you've been told they were. Uh, but statins, now I know you're completely against statins and actually you've got a very different um, base level at which someone's cholesterol would be termed by you healthy. Uh, I know the medical association uh, start looking at interfering with people's cholesterol levels when they get up to 200 uh, or so milligram percent. And you've always said that um, the elderly or even people over 50, not that, that elderly, but people over the age of 50 want a cholesterol level of 200 or 220 to 230. So in terms of what statins do, I, I saw uh, from their pharmacology that uh, they block um, mavalinate or they can interfere with mavalinate and uh, it's a kind of upstream uh, chemical. And this can cause aneuploidy and, and this in its own right is a really quite a serious uh, outcome uh, for using statins so if, if you experimentally uh, starve cells for cholesterol uh, the same thing that statin does to the person the, the cells in vitro are, are stuck in the tetraploid uh, state uh, they can't uh, do the reductive separation of chromosomes and old people's skin is uh, relatively loaded with cells stuck in that state because they're uh, with aging uh, the cells lose their ability to maintain the production of cholesterol yeah and when they get stuck in that condition then if something forces them to divide uh, they get the number of chromosomes uh, sort of randomized as they divide, uh, and that can produce cancer cells. Do, do you see any um, any protocol? Or do you have any kind of uh, answers in terms of uh, rejuvenating skin cholesterol? Experimentally, uh, and in the cosmetic industry, they're starting to put 
cholesterol in cosmetics because it, uh, in effect, uh, does rejuvenate the cells. It, it restores their ability to divide healthfully. So you can physically, topically apply cholesterol in the form of an ointment or a cream to the skin and expect the skin to take up a reasonable portion of that? Uh, that's what the experiments show, yeah. and the cosmetics companies are taking advantage of it. Interesting. Okay, because that was the whole thing that you mentioned about vitamin D production in the elderly. You have to have twice as much or more sunlight exposure to get the same conversion from cholesterol to vitamin D, which is so important for uh, immune health and uh, you know immune suppression, uh, immune surveillance. There's half as much cholesterol in the old skin as... Half as much. Okay, so that's a, a potential to look out for then. And I think from an anti, from an anti-aging perspective of... I know the collagen is the issue... Well, is some of the issue uh, in people's skin when they get older, when it starts to look a little unsightly or wrinkly or saggy or whatever, however they'd want to describe it. Um, do you think there's much that can be done to restore the collagen or the, the scaffold in which the skin is normally elastic and stretchy? Um, yeah, the cells normally are able to turn it over. Uh, energized cells can eat up the hardened, cross-linked, aged uh, collagen huh. and let the cells produce fresh collagen. Uh, and uh, the uh, cholesterol lets the cells divide normally, and so uh, they are more energetic, uh, produce a thicker layer of, of healthy cells rather than uh, a scaly uh, hardened layer of, of aged flaky cells. Okay, so there, there does seem to be then, from what you're saying, um, research showing that, that that is beneficial. That uh, if people want to think a little bit of that down, a little bit along those lines down the road, they could probably uh, do something themselves in terms of uh, uh, acquiring cholesterol and. Uh, again, because it's very fat, well, it's it's, uh, uh, it's amphoteric and it's moiety, isn't it? There's a hydrophilic um, head, is it, and a hydrophobic tail? It's one or the other. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the, the um, practical way to uh, keep your cholesterol synthesis ability is to avoid polyunsaturated fatty acids because uh, they turn off the synthesis of cholesterol and interfere with its use in the cells. Yeah. Okay. I, I know I've had this question uh, put to you before. Uh, in terms of raising your cholesterol, you've always um, advocated orange juice as a good fructose source that would actually increase a person's cholesterol. Um, yeah, uh, getting the cell energized with, with sugar and uh, supplementing thyroid if necessary. Yeah. So you, if you were able to do this, you're saying you think the cholesterol here itself would be distributed evenly throughout the body and that actually in the skin you would wind up with a higher concentration of cholesterol than before? Um, uh, yeah, except if, if your body is already saturated with polyunsaturated fats, they will interfere with it and uh, misdirect, put it into uh, harmful forms. Uh, the, the aging brain has uh, much less, about half as much, free cholesterol as the young brain, but it fills up with the uh, ester form uh, combined with polyunsaturated fatty acids. Okay, so apart, and again, it's just good to refresh me uh, on this subject, but in terms of, you've always said that four years is a rough approximation for the turnover of lipids in the cell. 
Um, so given that you had a completely exclusive diet of, poly, uh, of saturated fats and you completely excluded polyunsaturates, uh, after four years there should be a fairly good turnover within the cells. Uh, how is this the same with the brain, for example? If you're talking about the polyunsaturates um, causing damage in the brain and um, you know interfering with energy production and you know the whole thing from dementia and et cetera down the road. Yeah, every night there's a tremendous turnover of, of the lipids in the brain, but when you're asleep, uh, your blood sugar falls and the free fatty acids tend to be liberated from your fat stores. And so if you have bad fat in your uh, fat tissue uh, during the night, it's going to be in the blood vessels when your brain is remaking itself. So if you can keep your blood sugar up or get your fat so that it's pretty saturated, then your brain every night remakes itself considerably. Okay. And then, this is again, it's a little off topic, but we've gotten on to the, <coughs> excuse me, the topic of cholesterol. <clears throat> um, what about the, uh, I think you mentioned this chemical to me a month or two months ago, hydroxymethylbutyrate as a producer of cholesterol was a, or a precursor? Yeah, it's a precursor that supposedly helps to increase it. Yeah. I think most people are always thinking about decreasing their cholesterol, but I'm always thinking about increasing it. I know my cholesterol is actually low. Uh, I almost have a, uh, a, a problem with it. It's uh, probably 135 or 140. Uh, it's very important to, to get it up to yeah. 160. Yeah. Uh, bodybuilders are the ones experimenting with this precursor, but I haven't heard much from them about yeah. its effectiveness. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm due to get some um, basic blood work here done in the next month or two, and I'll see if it actually has increased through using uh, this product, because I know it uh, varies quite a bit, and I think that uh, may either be a seasonal variation with whatever food groups that we're particularly eating, whether it's uh, um, the uh, fruits and uh, sweet, juicy things during the summertime, or um, probably gravitating towards less of that and probably having to rely uh, more on uh, things like gelatin and meats and that in the winter times without so much uh, fresh fruit. But anyway, it's uh, coming up for half past seven here. So uh, if people have any questions, the number is 707-923-3911. Uh, give us five minutes or so. I think we have one or two callers who are kind of waiting. So, uh, let's just sit tight here. And uh, Actually, people were concerned about the roads, and I can let you know oh. that the big tree is still across the road uh, on the Ave near Weot, but it seems as though the power line is off the road at Elk. Creek Road, a caller will call us back and let us know for sure. But still, please drive very carefully. There are traffic hazards everywhere. Okay, so Dr. P, if I can, uh, if I can get into um, antivirals, uh, and have you, have you give your um, your perspective? Because I know it's very different, and again, it uh, it takes a it takes a kind of a constant uh, re relearning uh, in terms of cementing this but um, the viricides per se um, whether or not they are uh, you know the latest and greatest direct acting antivirals or uh, plant-based antivirals that are um, specific antivirals for things like herpes or whether they're for um, cytomegalovirus or we've you know the whole Zika thing that's happened here, or dengue fever. <clears throat> There's lots of uh, fairly current research which has uh, been done on medicinal plants and the components of those, and I'll get into those a bit later um, and ask you if you 
know uh, anything about them in terms of the structure because I think that's the important part. They've, Lots of them seem to be flavonoids um, and essential oil components, which seem to have uh, quite a high affinity for uh, viricidal activity. But within um, the actual role of viruses and how they how they t- take over the cell uh, to manufacture their own virions and replicate uh, and in things like hepatitis they reach huge proportions and burst out of the cell liberating millions of new viruses and this whole thing just seems to be so out of this world and and sci-fi um part of our part of our genome is viral uh, and it's part of probably our historical uh you know being in contact with viruses historically how these things have just become part of our makeup and i'm not saying it's good uh, and I don't think you would say that viruses are good either, but in some ways, uh, I think you've said that they are messengers and can be uh, used or can be understood in, in in some beneficial terms. But if you have anything to say on that, then I'll question you about some of the uh, specifics. A very large part of our genome resembles the retroviruses, but uh, when you wonder how viruses came in the being, since they can only exist in the cells of higher animals, uh, they obviously derive in some way from the higher animals' genetic material. And it's only in the last uh, several years that uh, Western uh, biochemists are starting to recognize that uh, there are particles circulating in our blood and lymph system a, a, a Korean uh, 60 years ago uh, claimed that he discovered a third circulatory system other than blood and lymph, which carries particles of genetic material. And uh, about 10 years ago, uh, this was actually documented uh, to uh, not the third circulatory system, but the fact that there are uh, very small particles of nuclear nucleic acids circulating in the blood and, and lymph carrying genetic information uh, to repair cells or change their their functions. Uh, the particles are so small that uh, people examining blood uh, under microscopes just considered it to be sort of dust in the background. But with proper magnification, they see that there are these microvesicles, they call, which bud off from the surface of cells, or or exosomes, uh, some of them are called. Uh, They carry both uh, DNA and RNA and proteins and and other parts of cells that act as signals, uh, for example, between uh, a working organ like the lungs and the uh, uh, turnover of cells in the bone marrow that are producing stem cells and immune cells and so on. Uh, So all of our organs are communicating with each other through these little particles that uh, are about the size of viruses and that contain genetic information and proteins the way viruses do. Do you you think there's anything, um, well, let's say the word useful, uh, about viruses i mean i've always imagined viruses just to be the bad guys and just you don't want to pick up a virus if you can at all avoid it because there's nothing good about them and 
is there anything to be said for viruses? Like, I know most viruses, the smart ones at least, try to keep the host alive. Um, but a lot of viruses, you know, end up with causing morbidity um, and early death. So, um, When bacteria are exposed to a dangerous environment, uh, such as antibiotics, uh, they are able, or, or starvation, they are able to edit, re-engineer their own genes uh, to produce adaptive changes. Uh, so uh, it's now recognized that, that uh, bacteria are capable of non-random so-called mutations for defensive adaptive purposes. And when one bacterium achieves the immunity to a certain thing in the environment, they can conveniently pack it up into a little exosome, a plasmid, which they pass on to their neighbors. Uh, so it spreads uh, like a viral infection. It's like a you can share the good news. <laughs> yeah, a self-constructed virus that the bacteria pass on for the defense of the community. And uh, within our body, we're doing, we're passing these little plasmids or microvesicles uh, to different parts of the body. When we eat another organism, we incorporate some of their DNA into our own cellular DNA. You eat beef and you get some some cow DNA incorporated in the cells. You eat carrots and you get some carrot DNA. <laughs> and uh, we're, in, in that sense, we're communicating across species all the time uh, genetically, wow. uh, kind of equivalent to, to what the bacteria do defensively. But uh, I, I imagine that uh, uh, viruses. Uh, uh, have some of that function so that uh, if it's in our genes and if like a, a, a bacterium can uh, use its uh, adaptive ability to uh, change its genes or to find this plasma that it has received from a neighbor. Uh, I think we have the ability to look into our genetic uh, reservoir, including carrot and cow genes, to see what's useful, and that these things, if they aren't useful, if, if we're not able to adaptively use them, if our energy is very low, hmm. then they can cause trouble. Uh, they yeah. can interfere with our adaptation. But if our energy is high, uh, I think uh, getting these particles of genetic information can actually increase our repertoire. Very good. Interesting. Okay, well, I think we have uh, a caller on the line, so let's take this first caller. You're on the air. Where are you from, caller? What's your question? Uh, I'm from uh, New York. Um, Andrew, by the way, great questions tonight. Really excellent job. Um, uh, my, I want to ask you two questions, but the, I want to follow up on the, the cholesterol, because you asked to be in, in context. The total cholesterol, 20, 225 to 230 for older people, what about, is that the only one that matters? There's triglycerides, there's L, you know, LDHDL, and it's very hard to know how to consider those. What, what are the appropriate ranges, even relative to someone who has a normal cholesterol, let's say, of 225? Okay. So, Dr. Pete, what would you say about HDL, LDL, uh, triglycerides, uh, in terms of their range? Because uh, I know, well, actually, let's, I, let's start off... Uh, you actually view 
uh, could then quote me if I'm wrong, but uh, the quote-unquote bad cholesterol is not what you see as a bad cholesterol at all. You see that actually as a, uh, a building block for manufacturing um, steroid hormones. Okay, maybe I engineers... Uh, <laughs> I think our engineer might have hung up. We just lost Dr. Pete somehow. I'll get him back. Okay, well, let's just... Uh, I guess we can do some music or something until Dr. Pete comes back on. I could just uh, discuss the next subject, but seems a little... seems a little uh, wry. Unless we, unless we have him on the line. Well, like I said uh, a little bit earlier on, we'll hopefully get into some of the uh, medicinal plants that have been shown to be viricidal, virostatic, uh, and uh, just uh, briefly uh, talk about some of the compounds that are responsible for those effects. So uh, anyway, I think we have the caller back. We have Dr. Pete back, hopefully. Um, Dr. Pete, you there? Uh, yeah. Uh, the part of his question I heard was uh, about uh, triglycerides. Yeah, he said what's, what was the, the, the relative proportions of the other components, HDL, LDL, and triglycerides, but I know that you view um, LDL and HDL differently uh, to the way that they would class some good and bad cholesterol. You don't actually look at them that way. So <clears throat> the question was the relative proportions um, in terms of what would be healthy or normal, uh, given that you advocate a slightly higher cholesterol than what would typically be seen as a regular normal cholesterol. Um, yeah, when your low-density uh, uh, cholesterol is low, that, that's what increases the cancer risk or, or dementia risk, too. Uh, but the things that poison your liver or stress you increase the HDL. And it happens that that protein that forms the HDL is anti-inflammatory, so it's a defensive reaction to stress. Uh, estrogen and alcohol, for example, will increase the HDL defensively. But the LDL is a protective source yeah. of, of, of the cholesterol. And if the uh, triglycerides are fairly saturated, uh, they aren't very harmful. Uh, they found that uh, heart failure is actually uh, less of a problem if your triglycerides are high. But uh, if the triglycerides are uh, polyunsaturated, uh, uh, that goes with uh, interference with, with the uh, function of the cholesterol. Uh, and free fatty acids are the dangerous form of fats in the blood. Uh, they, they have multiple uh, interference, for example, with ox oxidative metabolism <clears throat> and the use of sugar. But the triglycerides are pretty innocuous. Uh, they're just evidence that you're under stress and uh, uh, not using your sugar properly. Okay. okay. Thank, that thank was you for the that. first question. My, my question that I had um, before Andrew asked that question earlier, that was the follow-on, relates to a 22-year-old. Just to, as an example, he, he uh, sprains his ankle. The ligaments, some ligaments are torn. Some are stretched. So to, to, let's say one is stretched, one is torn. And he's trying to get back and walking. It's entirely you know, blown up with um, swelling and stress, as you know. Uh, when that happens, it turns. What are the 
three or four things that you would do to make sure that it heals properly, meaning that I think, based on what I've read, is you think that healing is ideal in a baby when there's no scar tissue, but we're told that scar tissue has to form in order for the torn ligament to attach back to the bone and for the stretched ligament to tighten up on its own, you will have to form scar tissue for that to happen. And we're thinking that that might lead to arthritis, et cetera, down the road. So I'm just wondering right now to avoid problems with arthritis 20 years from now, what is someone who's, you know, a 22-year-old, what, what should they be doing now to heal the injury quickly and focus on the long-term um, low scar tissue um, outcome? Uh, things to keep the free fatty acids low so that you use your uh, glucose as efficiently as possible to produce anti-inflammatory things like carbon dioxide. Uh, and uh, uh, aspirin and niacin amide, for example, are anti-inflammatory things that uh, reduce the uh, disorganizing kind of scar tissue and uh, promote a maximum quality healing uh, with a minimum of excess random collagen deposition. Gotcha. Okay. And so red light and CO2 would also be useful, but those are more short-term trauma-reducing issues. The actual intake of Lopufa, aspirin, and niacinamide, you're saying, will help reduce the scarring yet facilitate healing properly. And, and uh, vitamin D and vitamin K are very important. Getting enough calcium in your diet with vitamin D so that you keep your parathyroid hormone suppressed uh, to keep the tissue energy high, uh, including salt in your diet to keep the aldosterone uh, to a minimum because... Uh, uh, aldosterone promotes uh, disorganized collagen healing and, and fibrosis. So some unexpected things, uh, sodium and, and calcium in the diet, are, are protective to the healing of connective tissue. Gotcha. So the last aspect of this, if a doctor tells you, a trained doctor says, gee, the only way it's going to heal is when the scar tissue develops. Uh, well, Good scar tissue is fine, but it, uh, the, the worse your metabolism is, the uh, more disorganized the scar tissue is. So that a keloid, for example, is terrible scar tissue, uh, very disorganized because of uh, polyunsaturated fats in your circulation, uh, disorganizing the healing. Uh, a baby in utero with uh, no essential fatty acids in circulation and plenty of carbon dioxide will heal without any disorganized uh, structures. That's a great answer, and I appreciate that. Can I ask one other question, Andrew? Um, uh, very quickly, because we do have a couple of other callers, so let's be quick. We'll, we'll do. Um, so let's say an older person has fungal toe, and they've had it for a really long time. Um, someone has suggested mixing equal parts of apple cider vinegar and um, hydrogen peroxide and soaking the toe for 30 minutes each day for about a month. I know you've mentioned um, uh, sulfur, mm -hmm. but what do you think about this idea? I've tried it, and it does change. It, do, it does have a physiological effect, but I'm not sure whether it's a good one or a bad one. So that's well, How about iodine, Dr. P? Um, yeah, iodine is a good 
fungus killer. Uh, vinegar is a pretty fair uh, antagonist to the fungus. Uh, In combination with, with hydrogen peroxide, because that seems to be a fantastic product. Um, both of them individually, I imagine together they work all right too. Okay, so that's just another way to do it. So you're okay with that approach? Um, it, it sounds very, very safe. Uh, you can damage the tissue with too much hydrogen peroxide. Uh, once I, I spilled see. some 30% uh, peroxide on my finger and it turned strangely paper white, and I stuck it in a, a bottle of uh, ascorbic acid, and in a flash it looked n normal. <laughs> All right, well, thank wow. you for your call, Gawler. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. We'd like to get these next people uh, able to ask. So, next caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hi, um, I'm from Calgary, Alberta. And I, Dr. Pete, I had followed your suggestion to take coconut oil. Um, but I find that every single time I try it, I've tried taking it and then removing it from my diet, every time I try to take it, there's wonderful things for me, but it causes me really, really bad digestive distress, and I'm wondering why. Uh, what kind of coconut oil is it? Um, I I did try the uh, like the ultra purified or whatever it's called, um, and then lately I've been taking the like the scented one, not scented, but like not refined. I've I've found that the. Uh, Nice tasting, unrefined ones uh, were harder on the intestine, uh, and the ultra refined and even uh, hydrogenated uh, coconut oil I find is easiest on the intestine. Okay, okay, good. And I mean, did you, just out of curiosity, did you ever find that that happened to you, like oh, when you were first starting it, or was it fine? Uh, uh, no, I, I did find that different uh, brands, if they, if you put it on a hot frying pan and if it smells, uh, then it's more likely to hurt your intestine. It should okay. be odorless when it hits a hot pan. Okay, okay, good to know. I'll give that a try and hopefully it works because honestly, I've had great success with it. I, um, you know, normally without it, I can't go long without eating. Like I'll get really low blood sugar, but it helps me go so long without eating. It's absolutely incredible. So I'm really thankful for your suggestion. And thank you for having me on the air tonight. Okay, thanks for your call, caller. Okay, so let's take this next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from and what's your question? Caller, you're on the air. Caller, that's why we say listen on your phone, not on the radio. Three, two, one. Next caller, you are the caller. Okay, caller, you're Hi. on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? The other caller should call back, uh, incidentally, if they uh, can use a regular landline. That would be great. Yeah, I could hear that I'm on. Uh, I'm from Toronto, okay. Canada. Wow. Two can you hear me? From yeah, I can. Go ahead. What's your question? Okay. Uh, what can an individual do who has an opportunity to kind of intercept a psychopath and prevent the damage the psychopath would do to others? I just want to know if... Ray Pete has any uh, insight into that kind of psychological co uh, condition because uh, it seems that uh, psychologists say there's nothing that can be done to to normalize a psychopath or a cluster B. And I understand it makes up like 14% of the population and Does, it has some... Yeah, yeah. Is the psychopath on medication? Uh, yeah, probably. I'm not sure if 
they are on medication or not, but uh, might have something to do with yeah, uh, yeah bipolar or mm-hmm. a, a separate type of diagnosis. Well, Dr. Pete, I'm not too sure there's a, an answer for it, but if anyone's got one, you have. Uh, uh, keeping the brain uh, well energized, and uh, yeah, that means keeping the blood sugar steady. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, just a, a very digestible diet can make a person feel so much better that they don't have to exploit and manipulate other people. And that might have something to do with the sort of narcissistic uh, quality to it that uh, there might be kind of a, a sort of a food uh, condition, not, not wanting to eat or, or, or kind of uh, having low-calorie intake, so... Uh, yeah, I, is, I think the, yeah. the addictive personality that needs alcohol or drugs and such is somewhat in the same boat, uh, needing something that, that they uh, can't get themselves. They uh, try to uh, control others to make their life better. But if their life suddenly becomes better by changing their yeah. metabolism, uh, I've seen uh, lifetime addicts to alcohol or heroin or cocaine, just overnight, literally, uh, drop their addiction. Good. Excellent. Okay, well, let's just uh, leave the rest of the show open for people who might want to call in. Uh, there's just about seven minutes left, I think, so the number, if you uh, would like to call, is 707-923-3911. Uh, Dr. Ray Pete is joining us, and uh, we'll start to get into some of the... Um, topic of uh, viruses and viricides and uh, the kind of latest uh, research that's been done and we'll probably have to carry this over till next month so uh, people if they've listened to this and we're expecting to get some more than uh, the last segment of this show on the subject then next month I think we'll probably carry this over so Dr. Pete um, again I question you about viruses and I I've questioned you many times about uh, things like hepatitis virus and um, uh, we talk, I know you've mentioned the Zika virus outbreak that I think you would have a very different um, uh, explanation for and you've mentioned uh, I think a person's physiology and the terroir of the person being very responsible for actually having an outcome of uh, coming down with it or resisting it and I think that's uh, I think that's quite quite a fit answer. Um, let me just hold on a second here because the lights are going crazy in the uh, in the engineer's room there. So I'm not too sure whether he's lining lining people up. I think he is. So I probably just hold that train of thought because we have a caller. So okay. yeah, uh, caller, you're on the air. In fact, we have two. So let's take this first caller on the air. And what's your name? Where away from? What's your question? Sorry. I, I'm Robin. Am I on? Yeah, you're on, Robin. Where are you from? Okay, great. I'm from uh, West Haven. From where? Humboldt County. From in West Haven, Humboldt County. Oh, okay. Go ahead. What's your question, Robin? Yeah. Um, and you should turn your radio down. I think you. I think you might have a radio on in the background. Yeah. Will you turn that radio down? <laughs> Good. Um, one is about gallbladder and healing it. Okay. And um, I have. I'm. My gallbladder's not. You know, not functioning very well. Okay. And and a friend was talking about doing a fast, a great fast, hmm. um, which I've been hearing about, like mm-hmm. you know, intense fasting, and that well, that can be really helpful. 
that my naturopath also recommended it. So I wanted to hear what Dr. P had to say about yeah. that. Yeah, well, intense fasting is definitely not to be recommended. So first, I will let Dr. P go for it, but um, go ahead, Dr. P. Did you say grape, grape fasting? Yes. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Grape. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Years, grape years ago, I, I read a, a book called The Grape Cure by a South uh, African doctor, uh, and uh, I knew people, uh, someone started a, a little health clinic across the border in Mexico uh, based on the, the grape uh, diet. Uh, and so I investigated. Uh, that was one of the things that got me interested in the purple pigment in grapes uh, and other uh, fruits uh, as a, a stimulant to proper oxygen use uh, and uh, uh, combined with sugar and, and the uh, uh, minerals in grape juice uh, uh, grape juice does have a great therapeutic effects or, or uh, just eating the whole grapes, but either one, uh, it has many uh, therapeutic effects. So um, the call of Robin, um, in terms of your gallbladder, do you have things like uh, f- obstruction or do you have deficient bowel production and fat intolerance or what's, what, what's the diagnosis with your gallbladder? I have fat intolerance. There's nothing showing up on ultrasound. Right. But I also have, um, you know, kind of a whole mix of um, hypothyroid and some um, mold sensitivity, and I'm dealing with SIBO right now. And so um, the, the, gall, the gallbladder is very sensitive to low thyroid function or high yeah. estrogen in relation to progesterone. Progesterone relaxes it. Estrogen tends to cause spasms. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the sick reaction to, to fats is because the thresholds are lowered by the high estrogen to progesterone ratio, and uh, the key to it is almost always low thyroid function. Uh, you correct your your metabolism by, by getting your body temperature up to uh, daytime, typically around 98.6 Fahrenheit or 37 degrees centigrade. I, I have also definitely seen a good case uh, in point for um, plant bitters uh, based on things like the Swedish bitters formula, uh, things that will increase your digestive enzymes and your stomach pH and uh, pepsin production and those kind of things. The fat intolerance, anyway, uh, definitely uh, works very well to reduce flatulence and bloating and that kind of thing, which is a kind of derangement of uh, pH. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we do have one more caller, so let's get this uh, next caller on the air. And, uh, caller, you're on the air. What's your question? Where are you from? Hi. Uh, my question is about, uh, I'm from Eureka. My question is about uh, if Dr. P knows of uh, any medical condition or cause that would lead a person to uh, develop uh, digestive issues where there's, like, uh, a, a frequent and loose bowel movements as well as high blood pressure things that just sort of came out of the blue but about the same time in my life. Um, Okay, Dr. P, did you get that? um, uh, Yeah. um, uh, There are lots of things that can be involved, but um, uh, the stress stress physiology uh, is generally involved in both uh, uh, inflammation and uh, tendency to diarrhea and uh, high blood pressure. Uh, and uh, you, you, have you had blood tests? Uh, uh, yes, 
Yes, they've, they've been normal. Uh, everything has been has looked really good. What do you think about anti-serotonin? Uh, um, uh, yeah, low, low thyroid function with an, a TSH measurement uh, up to three, they call normal, but uh, anything above one is likely to uh, promote inflammation, including in the intestine. And uh, high serotonin is the main thing that contributes to uh, uh, an overactive bowel, and it's also it's it's named uh, for its ability to constrict blood vessels and raise blood pressure. And uh, there, there are drugs that will lower it, such as uh, ciproheptadine, but uh, usually you can uh, change your diet to reduce the inflammatory foods, uh, such as starches or uh, raw or undercooked vegetables that are, uh, support bacteria that cause the intestine inflammation. So less starch uh, and less raw vegetable matter? Uh, salads and bread and uh, beans and, and nuts and even potatoes can uh, sometimes feed the bacteria that cause the inflammation and uh, release serotonin. Okay. All right. So, and you look at that. You can you can you get a measurement on your the serotonin that you have in your body? I mean, does a blood test do that? Would blood would blood uh, analysis do that? It, it will usually show up as increased reverse T3, and sometimes uh, an actual low uh, T3 count. Uh, but uh, the, the simplest approach to it is to. Uh, eat a bland fiber. Uh, some people uh, are okay with uh, cooked oat bran as a mush, but uh, some bacteria can feed on that. And cooked mushrooms and uh, cooked bamboo shoots are, are bland fibers that will uh, uh, often will, will lower the serotonin and diarrhea effect. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, Dr. Pete, thanks so much for your time. I'll give out information about how to find more about you. Oh, okay, thanks. Thank you. Okay, so for people who've listened to the show, um, every third Friday of the month uh, we do a one-hour talk show uh, with Dr. Pete as our host, and um, he can be contacted uh, through the Internet. He has a website, which is www.raypeat.com. Um, he's got a lot of uh, well, uh, well-written well articles that are fully referenced uh, and very educational. Uh, I will say that they are very scientific, so if you really are a real basic lay person, you might find it a little hard going. Uh, but if you have any real interest in uh, science and research and you like to dig deep and find out things, uh, it would be a very good place to look for the articles that will quote why things he's saying are the way they are. Um, I can also be reached as well Monday through Friday. Um, either email me or uh, send a you know, voicemail to our uh, 888 number, which is one eight 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 wbm herb or uh, my email address is andrew at westernbotanicalmedicine.com. Um, okay, so until the third Friday of next month, I uh, wish you all good night, and uh, we will carry on just for those listening now. Uh, I never got into hardly anything to do with uh, viricidal activity of compounds, chemicals, medicinal plants, 
uh, and how uh, we can, again, through Dr. Pete's wisdom, uh, best arm ourselves with the best possible choice, best possible chance of staying healthy. Okay, so till uh, this same time, third Friday of next month, good night. <laughs>